Hello and welcome back to Since S-I-N-T, Studies in the New Testament with Seamus. I am your host, as always, Seamus. That's me. My name is Seamus. In case you didn't know, did I mention my name was Seamus? <laughs> <clears throat> I have been gone a while, and to my devoted listeners, thank you so very much for your patience. Um, I, many of you may know I had a, uh, an accident while I was away doing military duty and had my hand crushed, uh, unfortunately, <laughs> and it was it was pretty bad. The healing process is uh, long going, and so this is actually the first episode that I will be recording uh, after the injury. I've been in physical excuse me physical therapy now for a little over probably eight weeks. Um, Still can't grip anything quite yet, but we're getting there. Progress is being made. Um, And uh, so anyway, that's where I've been. (laughs) And life has been hectic ever since that. Uh, Learning to become left-handed is an interesting change to my life. So, Um, However, we're back. So, we will pick up right where we left off. Thank you for enduring with me uh, while I rant about my hand. (laughs) We left off at the end of chapter 1, and so we will be beginning with the first verse of chapter 2. Once again, I will be reading from the TLV, Tree of Life, version of the scriptures. Uh, And so, if you're just joining us, where you're only here to hear this particular chapter, my translation reads a little differently. Um, So, we will just begin reading. Chapter 2, verse 1. When he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was heard that he was at the house. So So many were gathered that there was no longer room for them even outside the door. He kept proclaiming the word to them. Some people became, man, I'm, I'm just not good at reading today, excuse me. Some people came bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four men. When they could not get near Yeshua because of the crowd, they removed the roof where he was. After digging through, they lowered the mat on which the paralyzed man was laying. Yeshua, seeing their faith, said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. So, bear with me here. Um, the The humor is not lost. Uh, I can't imagine how interesting things may have seemed with a uh, with a group of men digging through your roof just to get to you, <laughs> uh, and um, how awkward that must even be for the paralyzed man. Imagine if you were him in his shoes, um, or maybe no shoes because he doesn't need them. That was a terrible joke. I'm sorry. Forgive me. <laughs> but if you were him, uh, how how you would feel with your four friends um, going through all this effort for you just to get close to this guy um, who's uh, incredibly popular, it seems. And I want you to notice that, too, that Yeshua actually acknowledges this. He says, Yeshua, seeing their faith, said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. And that's interesting. It's not just the paralyzed man's faith. There's a collective faith being mentioned here, and and it's not inconsequential that it's worded that way, in my opinion. 
that there's a, a collective effort. Faith, of course, in the Hebrew context, um, emuna, is it's it's verb. It's it's very much faithfulness. Um, it's something that you do. Uh, English actually doesn't really have a good way of rendering emuna properly. I get one way you could say it would be like faithing, but that's not a word <laughs> in English. Uh, but to faith, like to 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 remain steadfast. Um, this is a concept I've gone over, I believe, before. Um, faith uh, is is the same word being used when, when Moses is lifting his hands while the Israelites battle with the Amalekites. And it, it mentions that when his hands fall, the Israelites begin to lose. But while, while Moses' hands remained up steadfast, or faith, emunah, it's the same word, then they were winning. And so there's this idea of enduring and steadfastness to faith. It's not just a belief system that you think about in your head and in your mind. Uh, it's definitely something that you live out and carry out, uh, and it's it's evident by your actions in the Hebrew mindset. And obviously, you could say the same here. Um, <laughs> the evidence is in their actions of their faith, uh, you know, going through all this trouble to dig through a man's roof. Uh, now they owe him another roof. Um, but the next part also gets a little interesting. Uh, Yeshua is going to bring in uh, an argumentative style um, because of what he just said. Probably caused the crowd to murmur a little bit. So let's let's move on to chapter. Uh, excuse me, to verse six of chapter two. But some of the Torah scholars were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this fellow speak like this? He blasphemes. Who can pardon sins but God alone? And I'll pause here. And they're not wrong. Um, only God can pardon sins. Especially sins that are heavenly sins. Um, and that is, t so there are, there are different classes of sin in the Hebrew uh, mind. And there's sins, there's, so for example, there's sins against your fellow, and that is something that you can absolutely forgive. You can forgive someone who sins against you, um, because that is against yourself. And then there are sins in the heavenly matters, right? That's, you've sinned against nobody else, you've hurt no one else in any other way, um, so it's a sin only between you and God. Now keeping in mind in the first century mindset, uh, many ails, ailments, uh, sicknesses were attributed to sin in some way. Uh, not everything could be explained with modern medicine like we have today. And so there's, a, there's an assumption, there's an underlying assumption here that this man is paralyzed because of some sort of sin. And nobody may even know what that is. Um, and, and they're okay with not knowing what that is, possibly. Uh, and it could be something that he just inherited from his father. Like, uh, there's, there's another example elsewhere in the Bible where they, they bring a blind man uh, to Yeshua and they ask, Who's uh, for for why is this man blind? Uh, is it for his own sins or for the sins of his father? So there's that underlying presupposition that sin is somehow connected with this ailment. And so, uh, for him to say your sins are forgiven, this this has something to do with heavenly matters, and and that would be something that only God could do, certainly. So they're not wrong here. Uh, so they're they're right in asking this question. It's it's very much uh, you know who does this man think he is? <clears throat> Immediately, Yeshua, knowing in his spirit, and I'm starting in verse eight now, that they were raising questions uh, this way within themselves, he said to them, 
Why are you questioning these things in your hearts? Alright, so we, we get this idea that Yeshua can definitely feel the room. <laughs> that things must have gotten eerily awkward upon him saying that. Um, or he could maybe see the Torah scholars sitting in the back with their face in a, in a very, you know, scolding-looking manner or, or something. There's, there's some sort of indicator. Um, or he could just know. He could just instinctively know uh, him most likely being a member of the Pharisee party himself. He may very well know that what when he says that phrase, um, that they are going to bring that up in question. And so it might just be that he already has an idea that this is going to be brought up. Uh, I tend to side with that uh, version of the argument that he's just he's within the culture. He's he's part of the the Pharisee culture, so he knows that what he's saying is pretty provocative. So. Why are you questioning these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralyzed man? Your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? Right, so I'll, I'll hit the pause button. Which would be easier to say to the man? Is, is essentially what he's saying. Your sins are forgiven, or get up and walk? Now, the reason I want to pause is because both of those things are not possible right? Only God can forgive sins, and only God could heal the man from his paralysis. So as far as humanity is concerned, or any, anybody else listening and watching, he has presented two impossibilities. Both are not possible. Um, so, this is where, this is where he, he, he uh, shows his agency now. But, Verse 10, but so that you may know the Son of Man has authority to pardon sins on earth. He tells the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. So, pause again. So that you might know the Son of Man has authority to pardon sins on earth. So, note, uh, so Son of Man is actually a common Hebrew um, idiom. It basically just means human being. Um, it's used of, uh, I believe, Ezekiel, and it's also a, a um, apocalyptic figure in the book of Daniel. Some uh, end times messianic type figure is referred to as the Son of Man. So this is a, a, is a book of Daniel reference, basically. And that is not something that the Pharisees or the other Torah scholars would not know. They would most likely understand the reference being made here, especially since, you know, to, to say son of man by itself is just human being, but he put the definite article in front of. So, the son of man. So, it seems like he's, he's referencing as himself to be this figure from Daniel, spoken of in Daniel. Um, now, he doesn't do this all the time. Sometimes he just uses the phrase the son of man, and he does mean just human beings. It, de it depends entirely upon the context. In this particular context, though, he is referring to himself as the son of man. And then he tells the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. So, remember, he presented two impossible choices two things that were an impossibility for any normal human being, right? To pardon heavenly sins and to heal a, a lifelong paralysis, which is presumed to be in connection with this sin, right? So if 
this man's sins are truly forgiven by God, right? And he's acting as God's agent here. Then you should be able to see some sort of proof of that. So both are an impossibility. Both can only be done by God. And by telling the man to get up and take his mat and go home, that that healing is obviously a miracle performed by heaven by God, right? It's a heavenly mandate, so to speak. So that is a proof that he has been given the agency to forgive sins on earth as the son of man by doing two things that are impossible, one that you can see, the other that you can't see. So these two things are very much connected, and that's why he chose to do it the way that he did. Uh, by Basically, by doing the impossible, he proves that his statement, your sins are forgiven, is a true statement. Uh, and, that, and that's why he takes the avenue of approach that he did take. So at once the man gets up, he, he took his mat, he walked before them all, and they were astonished and glorified God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. Okay. So, uh, in, in like Mark fashion, Mark likes to just jump from one set of uh, one small story to another um, without a whole lot of formal transition. It's pretty, pretty common in Mark. It's, it's a shorter gospel. It's much more concerned with preserving the sayings and the teachings and even the actions of Yeshua more than recording a timeline of history or, or uh, even chronological order. It's not super... It doesn't consider that in, a, of grave importance in any way. It, this is a religious document, not necessarily a historical document. Um, so, and, and by that I mean a historical, it is a document of history, but it's not a historical one. It doesn't claim to be a historical record, accurate timeline, you know, um, as the events happened. It's not claiming to do that. Um, it is just a preservation of the many things that Yeshua have done. And it does not even tell you that these are in order. It gives no indication of such. Uh, so it's just a religious document. It's, it's as though someone took notes at a class and wrote down all the important things uh, that he could remember from that class after the fact. And not everything is necessarily in order, but that doesn't matter. It's, it's his study notes. It's not a chronology of the class. So, we will move on. We will go on to uh, verse 13. Again, Yeshua went out by the sea. The whole crowd kept coming to him, and he continued to teach them. As he was passing by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. He said to him, follow me, and he got up and followed him. <clears throat> uh, once again, I believe I've mentioned here uh, before that uh, because it was very likely that Yeshua was an up-and-coming Pharisee, many people knew him. He was he was probably a, a, a popular figure by now already, uh, a well-known uh, person in the community, and people may have been searching to be one of his disciples so that they could hopefully get the same education that he got from him. Uh, and they would have been anticipating this. So it's not it's not abnormal for um, Yeshua to just speak to a random person and say, follow me, and then that person drops everything he's doing to follow him. 
this is not some sort of miracle that would have happened out of context. It just like suddenly these guys are like, I don't know who you are, but I'm okay. And that's not that's not how it was. Um, I'm not sure if I've covered that here on this on, on this podcast yet, but now you know. Uh, he very likely, you know, after his graduation, everyone would have been anticipating, hoping that he would ask them uh, to be a disciple of his. And so that's why we see this sudden like willingness to drop everything and go and to follow him. It's not. It's it's most likely because they knew him, they were already familiar with him, and they were uh, probably hoping that um, he would ask them, and so they would jump at the opportunity if presented. And so we see that they do, uh, which is good. It's very good for them. So I will move on. Uh, verse fifteen. Now it happens that Yeshua was reclining at the table in Levi's house. Uh, pause one second. So he's eating with Levi, basically it looks like immediately, right? Probably within the same day. Um, it's not uncommon to seal any kind of covenant with a meal in the first century. Um, so it's, when, you be, when you reach out and create a new disciple, uh, it is customary to have a meal with that disciple and treat it like a covenant obligation. You would seal the deal with over a meal. There's a lot of alliteration there. <laughs> Um, and that's not uncommon. And so what we see is basically nothing out of the ordinary. Um, Levy seems to accept his call for discipleship and probably offered to host the meal uh, for his newfound rabbi so that they could, you know, maybe talk to the family more or just celebrate the fact that he was selected to be one of the disciples. Um, he's probably very much looking forward to his future uh, learning under a, a popular rabbi. Uh, so I will move on. And many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Yeshua and his disciples. For there were many, and they were following him. When the Torah scholars of the Pharisees saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they began to say to his disciples, With tax collectors and sinners, he eats? Question mark. And then... And when he heard this, Yeshua said to them, Those who are healthy have no need for a doctor, but those who are sick do. I did not come to call the righteous, but the sinful. Okay, uh, so this particular passage reminded me of a, of a Talmudic passage, actually. I'd like to have it here, ready. Uh, just one second as I open it up. Let's see. Ah, yes, here it is. Okay, so this is from the Babylonian Talmud, um, Berachot 31a. So, some context. The Pharisees um, have strict tithing and purity standards, okay, forced into basically their exclusive membership, and they call this this kind of fellowship, they call it a hevarim, um, which more or less means friends. Um, the, the Pharisees referred to a fellow Pharisee who met their standards as a chever. So, in their mind, a tax collector is the opposite of a chever, right? So, Berachot uh, 31 Alpha. If a chever became a tax collector, he is expelled from the cheverim. If he withdrew from being a tax collector, he is no longer received as a chever. They subsequently declared, if he withdrew, he is regarded like any other person. They heard that Rabbi Huna ben Chaya 
had become a tax collector, they sent him a message saying that he should keep his job, hence they excommunicated him. He went back to his former job and sent them a message saying, I have left the tax collecting job. Rabbi Yosef would not go to him, but Rabbah went to him. Rabbi Yosef said, We have learned a former tax collector is not to be received as a chever. Rabbah replied, We have learned a former tax collector is to be, guarded, to be regarded like any other person. Okay. So, I just wanted to read that to you to have some context behind the seriousness of eating with tax collectors, as, especially as a Pharisee. So there's a huge, huge stigma against it. So uh, this, there's this last little footnote here. Um, this is actually coming from First Fruits of Zion's uh, commentary from Chronicles of the Messiah. Um, the chapter is called New Wineskins, page 377. The Pharisees considered Yeshua to be a hever. That is, they considered him a fellow Pharisee. If they did not, they would not have invited him to eat with them, as they frequently do, especially in the book of Luke. Nor would they have held him to the standards of the Hevarim. His eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners puzzled them, only because they expected him to maintain their standards. It was hard for them to respect the Hever, who would eat with a tax collector. So... That uh, all to to illustrate there that there is like these are the lowest of the low and there's actually already seem there seems to be a presupposed standard against eating with tax collectors, uh, associating with them in any way, and especially becoming one. Um, and so this is not just oh he's eating with tax collectors and sinners, you know how dare he? It, it's it's worse than that. Now tax collectors, are, uh, most people may know a little bit of the history behind that. If your job is a tax collector, it's you you don't make money except by stealing. So your job is to go around and collect the necessary taxes for the state of Rome in this case. Now the state of Rome is expecting a certain amount of money from you uh, from all of your collections. Um, but essentially you pocket what they don't know about as long as they get what they are supposed to get. And likewise, the people don't precisely know what level of taxes they should be paying. And so you will go around and you will collect more than you're supposed to. And you will give what you're supposed to to Rome and you will keep the rest for yourself. That's how you made a living. And it was seen as thievery, obviously, um, which is a very, a very bad practice. I will, uh, we will move on. Uh, we probably will not get to verse 23 in this particular episode. I want to, sh- I want to save that for next episode because that Mark 2, 23 to the end is one of my favorite passages. Uh, and I want to spend a lot of time on that. And we're already getting pretty close to the end of our, of our time here. So... I don't want to hold you guys up too long, but we will definitely get to that next episode, um, and I can't wait to, to do that one. So I will move on. We will start in uh, verse um, 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. They came and said to him, Why do the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? 
but your disciples do not fast. And Yeshua said to them, The guests of the bridegroom cannot fast, while the bridegroom is with them, can they? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away, is taken away from them, and when they will, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. So actually, um, that's that's starting the next thought. I'll stop right there. Um, the fasting thing. So it, it was actually pretty common. Um, the Didache actually uh, sort of cues us in here that the, the fa- I believe it's they fasted two times a week, uh, something like a Monday and a and a Thursday, uh, something like that. Um, I might be totally wrong. Uh, I just know that there's like two days within the week that they typically fast, and the, and the Didache even goes so much to say that you know in order to separate themselves from the from the other communities, um, they fast on different days, like a like a Tuesday or or something something like that um but uh so it's a pretty common practice to fast pretty regularly and it's it's not exactly in in modern judaism especially so modern judaism is is obviously different from first century uh, second temple judaism but modern judaism actually now looks down on fasting uh too regularly like that they they it's there's sort of this negative idea that you're prohibiting from yourself that which is permitted normally as though the prohibitions that are already provided in the Torah are not enough for you, right? So uh, aside from the, the fast days that are already prescribed in the Torah and in the rest of the Tanakh, there are four total fast days. Um, uh, excuse me, there are five total, uh, Yom Kippur being the biggest one, and then of course the four minor fast days, and they're called minor for that reason. They're not total fast days. Uh, they're they're usually just um, like fast from food. You can still have water. Uh, some of them aren't all day. They may only be twelve hours. Um, so they're they're minor fast, but it's still looked down to to fast outside of those days because you're prohibiting yourself more than the Torah prescribes that is already permitted to. Uh, against you so it's not a good thing these days anymore but back then it was regularly practiced most likely because uh food isn't exactly plentiful in in the old days you can't exactly go down to mcdonald's and get yourself a burger uh, at will um and so it was common to fast first thing in the morning and not to eat until after you've said your maari uh excuse me your mincha prayers your afternoon prayers which was around noon, between noon and three in the afternoon for us. Um, and that, that becomes an important fact uh, when we talk about Peter in chapter 10 with his vision of the sheet. It says that he was praying at the hour of the mincha, the, a- the afternoon prayer, and he was very hungry. That's because he had not eaten the whole morning. And that was a pretty common thing to do. They would just fast until after the, uh, the mincha prayer. That, that's actually where we get the term breakfast from. You break your fast <laughs> uh, with the first meal of the day, the breakfast meal. little etymology lesson there for you. But, um, and of course he's saying they're in the presence of somebody very important. Um, he's not outright calling himself the Messiah, but the bridegroom. Uh, and so fasting would just be inappropriate. So, uh, moving on to 21. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from the old, and a worse tear happens. 
And no one puts new wine in old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins. And the wine is lost. Also the skins. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. Okay. So, you know, his disciples are the fresh wineskins, right? And actually, I believe I have, uh, let's see. Yeah, so I have a passage from Pirkei Avot. That's a, that's a, a book from the Mishnah. Uh, that has a, a very similar sort of flavor to this. Um, so uh, it, the, the only reason I'm bringing this up is because I commonly hear that, you know, Jesus is basically, uh, Yeshua is more or less comparing Judaism to Christianity, right? Like the new wineskins are the new disciples. So that's they're pulling away from Judaism and creating this new religion, Christianity. And that's why it's necessary to have new wineskins, right? Um the, the, the Pirkei Avot will, I think, cast a, a better um, image of really what's, of what's trying to be conveyed here. He's not, he's not making the comp that, that compare and contrast. He's simply comparing students with other, with, with other um, stu students, basically. I I'll just go ahead and read it. This is uh, Pirkei Avot 420. Elisha ben Avuya said, "He who studies as a child, unto what can he can be can, uh, be compared? He can be compared to ink written on fresh new paper. But he who studies as an adult, unto what can he be prepared? Compared, excuse me. He can be compared to ink written on a smudged, previously used and erased sheet of paper." Rabbi Yossi ben Yehuda of the city of Babylon said, "He who learns from the young, that is, from a young age." Unto what can he be compared? He can be compared to one who eats unripe grapes um, and drinks unfermented wine from his vat. Oh, excuse me. Um, I, was, I, was, I read that wrong. He who learns from the young, right? He who learns from a child. <laughs> uh, he can be compared to one who eats unripe grapes and drinks unfermented wine from his vat. But he who learns from the old... Unto what can he be compared? He can be compared to one who eats ripe grapes and drinks old wine. Rabbi Meir said, Do not pay attention to the container, but pay attention to that which is in it. There is a new container full of old wine, and here is an old container which does not even contain new wine. Right, so there's, there's actually sort of this crossover. Uh, I like to say all the time that Yeshua never really taught anything new. Um, that he, he was really just repeating um, a certain side of the discussion, typically the, the, the more spiritual side of the discussion versus the, the, uh, the more stringent or closed-minded side of the discussion. Um, but uh, yeah, I just I found that interesting. I wanted to, to, to bring that into the, uh, to the discussion here. And in, in Pirkei Avot, the vessels for containing wine are not institutions, religious movements, or teachings. The vessels containing the wine are individual disciples. Right, so new wine, new wineskins. His disciples are, are both. They're, they're young, and they are new wineskins. So uh, there's no mix-match here, and that's kind of his point. Real quick, I can break it down uh, to make it a little simpler. 
New wineskins, uneducated students. Old wineskins, educated students, right? Previously educated, uh, an, an adult student. New wine, uh, new teaching or interpretation. Old wine, a previously learned teaching or interpretation. Meaning, uh, the overall meaning. New teaching requires previously uneducated students, right? Because otherwise it's like writing on already written on paper that you have to erase and it's been smudged in the paper. It's, it's, it's not the same. Uh, it's not as fresh. So because previously educated uh, students, especially learning as an adult, prefer the old ways, right? So they'll have a harder time making the necessary changes or adapting a new interpretation. And I use the word new relatively scarcely. I don't mean new as in brand new, like like uh, Jesus taught something profound and completely unheard of. More that, uh, especially at this time during this particular religious climate, um, he is teaching that his teachings align more with that of Hillel, who has been previously expelled uh, more or less from this timeline that we're dealing with currently. The dominating house of the school of thought is the school of Shammai, not the school of Hillel. And so there's a lot more of a strict, stringent, uh, and even Gentile hatred that is prevalent in the modern teachings of the Pharisees currently in Jesus' time. And his, Jesus' own teachings, line more of with Hillel. And so there are very few Hillelite scholars in the area. And so you, he would have to basically start over, since, especially since the school of Shammai are more or less the direct enemies of the school of Hillel. It would be very difficult uh, and probably not smart at all to try and pull a school of Shammai student and convert him to the school of Hillel. Uh, that he very mel he very well might um, revert back to his old ways after Yeshua has his uh, death, burial, and resurrection. He he may very well continue to teach in the Shemai way because that's what he knows. That's he knows that better than he does anything else. And three years with the Messiah is probably not enough time for him anyway to erase everything that he's probably spent his twenty years learning and have a total rethought in just three years uh, so that the wine and new wineskins and stuff is very much um, he's trying to qualify his disciples here because um, yeah they are they are uneducated and that becomes important later on especially when we get to why uh, James uh, the brother of Jesus becomes the council leader that that will be an important thing to keep in mind when we get there because James was very likely trained as a Pharisee in the school of Hillel uh, and so he is qualified to step in in that place as a leadership role and to continue the disciples education um, in in certain ways that that he is able to so that's that's what I got for you this episode um, we will get to the last paragraph next week. I look forward to covering that particular passage. Uh, I very much like explaining that one. Uh, there's a lot there. And um, 
once again, everybody, thank you so very much for your patience. <laughs> I know it's been a while since I've made a podcast, so um, once again, I apologize. Uh, but at the same time, I'm not super sorry because I did crush my hand and that was kind of bad. <laughs> but thank you once again. Uh, I'm still in the healing process, so uh, prayers are appreciated. I, I, I appreciate all your guys' support, your continued support and your patience. Um, and I hope this lesson has been a blessing to you. And I cannot wait to uh, meet with you guys again next week. And so until next time, this has been... Since Studies in the New Testament with Seamus, I have been your host, Seamus. My name is Seamus. <laughs> Did I mention my name is Seamus? Have a good night.